0: A question, do you actually believe the, the words that you sung this morning? I mean, seriously, do you believe that, that God can make beautiful things out of us? Do you believe that, that God can make us new? Do you believe that, that God can make you new, that he can make something beautiful out of your life? And you believe that God's love for you is reckless, that there's no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up? No wall he won't kick down, no lie he won't tear down. Do you believe that God would actually leave the 99 in order to come after you? And you believe that your God is a lion, that he's the lion of Judah, and that he is roaring with power, and that he is fighting your battles, and that his blood breaks every chain, and that he sets the captives free, and that one day he's coming on the clouds, and that every knee will bow. Yeah, we sang some good stuff. Some true stuff, some powerful stuff, some empowering stuff, some encouraging stuff. I don't care who you are, amen? Amen. Okay, let's do this. It's the third Sunday of the year 2018, a a year that many of us in this room are determined to not let slip away, a year that we are going to grab, we're going to go, we're going to risk, we're going to adapt, we're going to believe, and we're going to be the change that we want to see in this world. A year where we're going to make God's main thing, seeking and saving the lost, our main thing. A year where we're going to deal with throughout the day, pray for one. Lord, give me one person that I can share your love with today. And a year where, like God's people in 1 Kings chapter 1, we're going to make a choice. We're going to stop riding the fence. We're going to stop being lukewarm. And we're going to really follow God because He is God. Man, the The last three weeks have been good. And if we live those truths out loud, look out. 2018 is going to be an amazing year. It's the third Sunday of the year 2018, and we're kicking off our very first sermon series of the year. It's called The End of Me, Where Real Life Begins. And i got to tell you that I'm really pumped and excited about the series because that's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I hunger for. Real life. Not fake life. Not pretend life. Not facade life. Not empty life. Not imitation life. Not pseudo life. Not not quite not not quite their life. That didn't make sense. It'll make sense later. Maybe. No, I, I want real life. I I I want the full life that Jesus came to bring me two thousand years ago. And listen here's the deal. I have known for years that the number one problem, the biggest obstacle, the greatest hindrance to me actually living and experiencing the real and full life is me. And brothers and sisters, I'm pretty sure you have the exact same problem. And that is why I must find a way to get to the end of me, because that is where real life begins. Now, there's a a few scriptures that speak to what I'm trying to say. In Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 7, we read these words. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living being. God breathed what? He breathed the breath of life. And man became what? He became a, he became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed a man he had made. The Lord made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I understand in the beginning, God breathed the breath of life into man. Why? Because he wanted man to, to be a, a living being. And I think he was pretty serious about it because right in the middle of the garden, where man had full access to was what? The tree of tree of life. However, we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know what happens in Genesis 3. And understand, in Genesis 3, the real life, the full life that God breathed into and intends for us got all messed up. You see, one day, and, and, and we don't know how many days it had been, but one day Adam and Eve stood in the middle of the garden, and they looked at two trees, and they said to themselves, do I want the fruit from the tree of life? Or do I want the fruit that God said not to eat? And there's the problem right there. They're asking themselves, what do I want rather than what does God want? And as Adam and Eve reach for that beginning of fruit, we see the beginning of me. The beginning of making life about me, making life for me, making life centered and revolved around me. Yes, me messed up the life that God has for us, But the good news is that because God still loves us so much, he sent Jesus, who said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give us a full life. He came to give us real life. And, and, and it's a life that we will only experience when we get to the end of, of me. Now, here are a few what I'm calling end of me verses The first is in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, whoever, and look through three people's eye and tell them, whoever, 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 whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. Pray after me. Whoever wants to be my disciple disciple. must deny themselves and take up, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And follow me. For what? Now you can stop repeating, it would be here all day. <laughs> whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to live for me, themselves, will lose it. But whatever loses their life for me, whoever loses their me for me, <laughs> will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their, their very self? Paul writes, this end of me passage is at Corinthians 5. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, the end of me. And he died for us all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's the end of me. And Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, the end of me. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the third Sunday of the year, 2018. And by the authority of the Word of God, I proclaim to you that real life begins when you get to the end of me. In his book, The End of Me, which I'm basing this series on, Kyle Eidemann has a chapter in the beginning called A Note to Me, and here's how he ends that chapter. I love you, me, but I can't keep living for you. You always insisted that if I just keep you happy, then I'd be happy. As simple as that. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. Never has been. Me, I've let you been in charge, I've been in control and sit in the driver's seat, but it's clear you can't be trusted. You keep insisting you know the way we should go, but it always seems to be a dead end. I've looked at some other options, and I've decided to begin a journey down a different path. It's narrow and difficult, and not many choose it, but it leads to real and abundant life. However, and there's no easy way to say this, I can't take this path if I bring you along. So me, this is the end of you, sincerely, me. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence and and god you're inviting each of us myself included on a journey a journey to get to the end of me so that real life can begin holy spirit guide our steps guide my words and lord protect our hearts and minds and thoughts from the evil one because he does not want the people in this room people hearing my voice right now to take this journey in Jesus' name, Amen. In 2010, a multi-millionaire named um, Forrest Fenn from New Mexico had this idea of getting America to turn off their TV and to turn off their video games and go on an adventure. So he took some of his treasure—gold and coins and diamonds and gems, million-dollar-plus worth of stuff—and he stuck it in a chest and he hid the chest and he sent America, America, on a treasure hunt. Now he provided a poem, you can read it online with nine clues that if you read it, tells you absolutely nothing, in my opinion. And thousands of people have gone off looking for this hidden treasure and using this poem as a roadmap. He has an autobiography called The Thrill of the Chase, and he just talks about how, how that the most valuable things, the most beautiful things, are not easily found. They're not just out there, they're hidden you've got to search for them. You've got to go out and look for them. So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to go on a bit of a treasure hunt together. And what we're going to find is that what we really want is not, it's not just right there, that that it takes some effort. You have to look for it. You have to wonder. You have to seek after it. In fact, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is is like a treasure, what, hidden in the field. And, And so we're going to, study over the next few weeks some of the Beatitudes beginning in Matthew chapter 5. You can think of them as eight clues uh, that Jesus gives us on a treasure hunt, a treasure hunt to find real and full and lasting, abundant life. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, turn to Matthew chapter 5. But before we go there, I want to read just one more uh, end-to-me verse that Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. You died to this life, the end of me. It's kind of a theme in Scripture, it seems to be. You died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Again, first of all, Paul says that that, that you died, that you need to reach the end of me, and he says that your real life is hidden with Christ and God. You you see, there's this hidden nature to the life that God has for you and for me. And and listen, here's what makes it hidden. It's the opposite of what many of us intuitively think it's going to be. Like, where we assume we're going to find happiness, where we assume we'll find real life, it's, it's the opposite of some of our assumptions. So there's a sense in which our real life in Christ is hidden. And listen, these clues that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes help reveal the real life, the full life that God has for us. Now, the Beatitudes are the, are the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's his first recorded sermon. It's uh, it's kind of his launch into his, his public ministry. It's the longest sermon of his we have on record. And, and here's an important uh, piece of information to keep in mind as we dive into this, is that Jesus was a rabbi. And in those days, rabbi each rabbi had a, a different interpretation, application of God's Word. A, a rabbi would say, Uh, This is how I interpret that piece of God's word and and this is how you should live it out. And and the followers of the rabbis would determine who they would follow based upon the rabbi's interpretation and application of God's word. Uh, Are you tracking with me? Now now do you know what a a rabbi's interpretation and application of God's word was called? It was actually called the yoke of the rabbi. Here's a picture of a yoke. A, A yoke is a A wooden harness that you put over the neck of an animal. There's the beef right there, right? You're looking for it. There it is, right? And and, and what the yoke would do, it would guide, it's used to guide and direct that animal in the direction that it should go. And so a rabbi would say, here's my yoke. Here's my understanding and here's my application of God's word. And the followers would say, okay, you know what? I'm going to put that on. I'm going to put on your yoke and allow your yoke to guide and direct my life. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, people of God, people seeking God, here is my yoke. And Listen, one thing became blatantly obvious right out of the gates is that Jesus' yoke is much different than any yoke they have heard about before. In fact, this is going to be counterintuitive to them. It's going to be the opposite of what people would think. And opposite things can be very disconcerting at first, right? Remember when you learned to drive in reverse? Now, some of you are still learning that. I get that, right? But, you know, it, it, it's kind of difficult, right, because it's counterintuitive. You have to do the opposite of what feels right as you're looking behind you. Now, the word counterintuitive could be defined as doing something on the surface doesn't seem to make sense, but it's what works, Surface, it don't look like it makes sense, but it works. And this is the hidden nature of the teaching of Jesus. It's So much of it is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. But it is, in fact, what works. It's the yoke that leads to real life. Even though it seems to be upside down. Even though it seems to be the opposite. A guy named Leonard Sweet wrote a book on my bookshelf. I love it. It's called Jesus Drives Me crazy. He has a chapter called Nuts Wisdom. Okay, He he writes, everything that Jesus taught goes against how normal people see and function in the world. You see, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, giving the spare coat, washing someone's feet, heaping blessings on those who curse you, selling your possessions and giving them to the church, living without anger, laying down your life, all these things. Normal people have a hard time understanding, much less thinking and living. The truth is, Jesus stood normal wisdom on its head. And this is in your notes to fill in. Christianity invites us to live an intuitively counterintuitive life. The lifted up one, the one who sits high and walks low, taught that the thoroughfare to God is full of bypasses and back roads. Jesus taught that the, the way up is down, that the way in is out, that the way first is last, that the way of success is service. He taught that the way of attainment is relinquishment. The way of strength is weakness. The way of security is vulnerability. The way of protection is forgiveness, up to 70 times 7. He taught that the the way of life is death, death to self, the end of me. He taught that we need to know our strengths. Why? So that we can lay our strengths down. He taught that God's power is made perfect where in our weaknesses. He taught that if you want to get the most, go to where the least are. If you want to be free, give complete control to God. He said, if you, if you want to become great, become the least, become a servant. You want to find yourself, he says, forget yourself. You want to really get even with your enemies? Bless them, love them, and pray for them. And sweet so continues, and for Jesus, it wasn't enough to turn the other cheek. No, one had to turn the hands and feet as well in doing good to that person. To world world obsessed with power, the gospel is nuts. To world obsessed with success, Jesus' teaching is nuts. Well, that's some sweet teaching from Leonard Sweet. So Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with this introduction to the Beatitudes. And each Beatitude begins with the word blessed. So he says, do you want a blessed life? And everyone says, yes, we want a blessed life. I, we want a happy life. Then he says, blessed are you who... And then he gives eight different characteristics of a life that is blessed. Now, now your version may translate it as happy instead of the word blessed. And that's an okay word. It's probably the best standalone word. But yet, the word happy, it's still too small. It it doesn't capture the full meaning. And I think to capture the full meaning of of the word blessed, we have to look back at what Jesus said again in John 10.10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that's the blessed life. It's a full life in Christ. And so here's how we'll define a blessed life for the purpose of this series. A blessed life equals living with a God-given joy, fullness, and satisfaction. And here's the kicker right here. Regardless of what? Outward conditions. And this is huge for us, right? Because we're all about a blessed life. In this country, right? We declared it, right? <laughs> right? We have certain inel- ineligible rights. Life, liberty, and the what? Pursuit of happiness. But most of us think that the pursuit of happiness is all about outward conditions. That if we can just change our circumstances, change our situation, then we'll be happy. Then we can be blessed. But Jesus is going to teach the exact opposite. He said a blessed life is, first of all, that it's God-giving. It's not something we pursue and find on our own. It's given to us by God. And then he says that, you know, it's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon our conditions or our situation. A blessed life supersedes that, and, and, and God gives us a joy and fullness and satisfaction regardless of our outward circumstances. Does anybody out there want to have a blessed life? I do. Supersize it, right? And And so Jesus is going to teach what it means to be blessed. And it's going to be different. It's going to be counterintuitive to what many of us would assume. Get it? Good. And here we go. Matthew 3. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the king of heaven. And that's how he begins his ministry. I mean, With those four words, that's how he launches his, his public ministry. Blessed are the poor. Now, those first four words, some of you are like, yeah, I win. I'm broke. It's great news. But seriously, most of the time, you know, we we look at this, we think, you know, maybe Jesus is a little bit nervous here, you know, it's just beginning his ministry. Maybe he misspoke and meant to say, blessed are the rich. Because that's how the equation works for us, right? We equate a blessed life with being rich. I mean, we even use the words interchangeably. Like if you go to a, a rich person's house and you, you say, man, that is... What an awesome house you have, and what, a, what an incredible car you have. They don't say, thanks, I'm so rich. They don't say that. They say what? Thanks, I'm so what? I'm so blessed. Because we equate being blessed with being rich. But, but Jesus, uh, the very first thing out of his mouth as he kicks off his ministry are blessed are the poor. Now he's talking about more than just, you know, monetary things. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the word use poor here, it means destitute, it means bankrupt. So when I'm bankrupt in spirit, that's when I'm blessed. Okay, what does that even mean? Now, it seems like we should try to figure this out, right? You know, I mean, if that's how Jesus begins his ministry, if Jesus says that it's, it's those who are poor in spirit that are blessed, that will have real life and have full life, then I think we should try to figure out what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit. And that's what I want to do in our time remaining is to unpack uh, what it means to be poor in spirit. First of all, being poor in spirit means embracing your brokenness. It means that you reach a point where you realize you're broke. That you are spiritually what? bankrupt. That you cannot pay the bill, that you can't dig yourself out of the hole, that you can't take care of yourself, that you can't fix the problem, that you can't redeem the situation, that you can't put the pieces back together again, that you can't turn this thing around, that you can't get past it, and you declare bankruptcy. And Jesus says, in that moment, blessed are you. Blessed are you when you declare spiritual bankruptcy, Tim Keller, a pastor and author, writes the following definition of what is meant by poor in spirit. He says, it means seeing that you are deeply in debt before God. Is that how you see yourself this morning? Well, I'm deeply in debt, but you know what? That person over there, (laughs) their debt is much deeper than mine. And you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him is your only hope. But he says, that's hard for us today. As Americans, this is a reality difficult thing. This is a really difficult thing for us. And he explains it this way. He says, on the contrary, most of us, you believe that God owes you something, that he ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you have done. And we can say that you are, I like this, middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You also may believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. And I I think he nailed it. Middle class and spirit. It's the belief that you've worked hard and God owes you something. That the good things you have in your life, that the positive things you have are because of your own resourcefulness, your own Energy. And listen, that thinking, that kind of spirit, that mindset is what keeps many of us from experiencing God's blessing in our lives. Because we approach him like we approach everyone else, like we actually have something to offer. Uh, We try to bribe God with what he already, already belongs to him. God, look what I've, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. You owe me. But here's the deal. It's not until we admit bankruptcy that we can be truly blessed by God. Jesus says, blessed are those who admit their poverty. And That's hard for us because we're all about maintaining the image. We're all about looking like we have it together, even in this room and sometimes especially in this room, right? Let's put on our plastic facade and smile even though our life is falling apart. Tragedy. Church, should be, we should be more authentic, shouldn't we? If any place we can be real, it should be here. Any place we'd be able to admit that we don't have it together is a place where you can actually be put back together. Anybody out there? Amen. But someone who's poor in spirit is like, hey, I don't have it together. Sometimes we can be like the guy who's about to declare Bankruptcy. And he's driving around in a very expensive car because he, he wants to keep off the facade for as long as he possibly can. And we can be like that spiritually. For years and years and years, we just, we don't acknowledge the mess. We don't acknowledge the brokenness. We don't want anybody to look too close. We don't want them to peek into our windows. We don't want to say that we need help. We don't want to admit that we're broken. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you reach that point. Why? Because when you realize the truth about your own brokenness, you will be poor in spirit, and then you open up the door for my blessings to flow into your life. Get it? Good. It's like a child who finally comes to a parent, and without, without making demands, without making excuses, without making justification, says, Mom, Dad, will you help me? And Jesus says, at that point, you can be blessed. But understand, to get there, we've got to reach the point where we can say, I can't fix it. I can't repair it. I I can't rebuild it. I I can't restore it. I can't patch this thing up on my own. So the important spirit is reaching that point where you embrace your brokenness. A a few weeks back, I was reflecting on my brokenness, and I was texting some of my, my, my brothers in Christ, and as I, I typed the word brokenness, it autocorrected to broken mess. And I laughed. I said, that's what I am. That's what brokenness is, to be a broken mess. And I get it. I get it. I, I, I feel you. Know, we would all like to be able to be whole without being broken. But that's not the yoke of Jesus. That's not the way it works with this rabbi. Get it? Good, and the second thing poor in spirit means is asking for help. Simple, right? Just ask for help, but it can be the hardest thing to do because when we ask for help, we're admitting that we can't do it on our own, and that goes against what we have believed or been taught or what we have pretended for years. Did you know that the self-help industry is a $10 billion industry in the U.S. alone, that there's 45,000 self-help books out there I mean, why are we so into this help, help thing? I, I, I have five children, and, and I can tell you that it wasn't long before they learned these five words, I can do it myself, right? I can do it myself. You see, there's something within us that just we just want to do it ourselves. We got into this situation. I'll get myself out of this situation. I can fix this problem. I can do it myself. Because look, there are no awards at a sports banquet for being poor in spirit, right? I mean, there's no awards or plaques for saying, I can't do it. <laughs> I need someone to help me. I mean, we don't put that on a resume, right? You know, I can't do it. I could use some help, right? No, no, we celebrate the opposite. We celebrate the self-reliance spirit. We celebrate those who help themselves. But Jesus said, if you want to be blessed, you got to be poor in spirit. you got to get to the point where you can recognize your poverty, and say, God, I need help. And you know, Jesus says that this is the point where you're blessed when you finally say, I can't do it. I can't mend my marriage. I can't fix my kids. I can't stay sober. I can't restrain my lust. I, I, can't, I can't control my temper. I can't let go of that hurt. I, I can't save myself. I, I can't put the pieces back together again. God, I can't do it. Help me. Uh, The message paraphrase puts it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your ropes, the end of me. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Now most of us will think that that is not a good thing, right, to get to the end of your rope, to find ourselves in a situation where everything's falling apart and, and, and it's really broken. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you reach that point. Because when you reach that point, you realize you're bankrupt. And then you finally make room for God, for God's hand in your life. And I love that. With less of you, with less of me, there's more room for God in your life. That's difficult. And I think one of the reasons it's difficult is because some of us have put on the wrong yoke. Like I I was reading this week about a survey that, that was done asking people to quote some of their favorite Bible verses and, uh, one that was frequently mentioned was uh, this verse here. The Lord helps those who? Great verse, but it's nowhere in the Bible, right? It's not there. It's just not there. And yet, 81% of people, according to George Barner, believes it there. Let me tell you another verse is not there. That's another load of you know what. Um, you know, the Lord won't put anything more on you than you can handle. Not in the Bible. That's nowhere. Okay, that's not true. Sometimes it's pretty hard to handle, Right? And people beat themselves say, well, you know, he's dumping it on me. You know, it's, No, it's not in the Bible. The Bible teaches the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's who God helps. Those who ask for help. But we like to rewrite Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from me. <laughs> oh, The Maker of Heaven and Earth. Let's compare those two options. I can get help from the Maker of Heaven and Earth, or I can get help from me. Uh, Which one you think is going to be the better helper? And you know, when you study the ministry of Jesus, you know what you find out is that the people who ask for help are the ones who actually get blessed. So, a woman comes to Jesus. Her body won't stop bleeding. She spent all her money on doctors, and she's anemic. She's wasting away. She's at the end of her ropes. And she cries out in desperation, brokenness to Jesus and for help, and he helps her, and she's blessed. A Canaanite woman, I, I, I mean, no one would help her. She was an outcast, but her daughter is suffering, and she's desperate. She was at the end of her, end of her rope, and she cried out to Jesus for help in her brokenness, and she is blessed. There's a blind guy and. 18, I read about him on Friday. He's begging by the roadside and he hears that Jesus is coming. He begins shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd is like, yo, you'll be quiet back there. Keep it down. We're trying to hear Jesus. But he wouldn't listen. He kept shouting louder and louder. Suddenly Jesus notices and he stops. He calls the man to him. And he asked that man a question he wants to ask some of you this morning. What do you want me to do for you? The guy says, help me. I want to see. And he went home that day seeing. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who embrace their brokenness and ask for help. Psalm 107 is this great psalm of praise about this God who helps. It goes like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out! Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and helpless and hungry and thirsty. They nearly died. Lord, help! They cried in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. Some sat in darkness and deepest gloom. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Imprisoned in iron chains of misery. Lord, help! They cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Some went off to the sea in ships and their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. And he calmed the storms to a whisper and he stilled the waves. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. Amen, the God who helps. Three times they cried in their trouble, three times they asked for help and three times God rescues them. So this is how Jesus begins his sermon and how he begins his ministry. Bless are you when you've reached the end of your rope. Bless are you who embrace your brokenness. Bless are you who ask God for help. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Early Saturday morning, I read Luke 15, and be honest, I didn't really want to read it because I'm like, okay, God, I've read this so many times. <laughs> I've taught it so many times. And then I repent it. And I started reading it. First, I was like, okay, I need to seek and save the lost. You know, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, like God does. God goes, yeah, you do, Steve, but I want you to remember, Steve, that this is your story. Steve, you're the lost sheep. You're the lost coin, and you're the lost son. And and, and then he begins, and the lost son is such a powerful story, and it's your story my story. Here's this guy who... He demands his inheritance from his dad, right? And he gets the money. He goes off to a far-off land, and he, he winds up living a wild, immoral life. Doesn't call, text his dad, doesn't Instagram his dad, nothing, right? And, 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 and uh, loses everything. Only job he can find is feeding pigs. You know, and Jewish people and pigs didn't get along too well back then, so it's like he reached a low point. And he got so hungry that he even looked at pig food, and I've seen pig food before, but he saw pig food and wanted some. And eventually he came to his senses. I don't know how long it took, a day. I don't know how long he spent in that pig pen. Was it a day, a week, a month, years? But he finally came to his senses. He finally became poor in spirit. And he says, God, and he's planning his speech for his dad. And Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your servants. And he starts heading home, and, and, and while well, he's still a far way off, he's still not there yet, his dad sees him and runs out to greet him, and he's got his speech ready, he's got his index card. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. The father totally ignores him. As he throws a, my broken son has come back home and has now found party. Because the son got to the point where he says, I got nothing, got nothing. God goes, ah. To get to real life, we get, have to get to the end of me. We have to be important in, in spirit, which means embracing your brokenness and asking God for help. And, and here's how I, I want to, to wrap up our, our time together. Have you noticed that one of the images in, in our culture for asking for help is an image would be like ringing a bell? Like if you go outside and during the holidays, right? Outside of Walmart. You just left Target and gave all your money. Now you feel like a cheapskate because now they're still ringing that bell, right? <laughs> you know, and that bell says what? Hey, we need your help. We need your help. And sometimes maybe at a hotel or a business, right, there's this counter. And, and, and like, if no one's there at the counter, they have this thing that you can ring, right, to say, hey, I need help, Right? Now, some of you don't ring that, right, because, I don't know, maybe you don't want to appear like you're needy, right? You know, so you just stand there and wait, and you wait, and you wait, and get mad, right? And you don't ring the bell, but that's what it's there for, to say you need help. You know, growing up, when I, you know, when I got real sick, my mom would give me a bell to ring, and I'd ring that bell, Mom, I need help. Uh, uh, this bell here, you know, it, it, uh, it's been in our family for a long time, and, and um, when my kids got real sick, my older kids, especially, we don't ring the bell. We text now more. But back then, you know, if they needed help, you know, I'll be listening, right? And I hear that bell, and I one of my kids is sick. I hear that bell. You know what? I start running, right? Because they 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 need help. And and, and and here's what I want us to do in just a few minutes. We're gonna ring a bell, and we're gonna let God we know we need help. Jesus said in Mark two verse seventeen, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've not come those who think they're righteous, those who think they're healthy, but those who know they're not, those who know they're sinners, who know they're sick. Point is, if you want what Jesus has for you, you have to be sick. Now we're all sick. but Some of us think we're well. We think we're healthy. So we don't ask for help. We don't ring the bell. And what we're gonna do is put this into practice. You may have noticed the little cards on your seat. and, And it just says, Lord, help me with and then, you know, there's a, there's the two kiosks off to the side, and, and and the one over here, you know, there's a basket, and where you can take the card you have. There's some cards here. There's pens everywhere. And as we sing this song, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to put this into practice, right? Where you'll come here and you'll you'll write on this card, "Lord help me with." Don't write your name. Don't peek at anybody, right? You know. No, no, we're not going to peek at it. We're not going to do handwriting analysis on anybody, right? But you, you, you write, you're, Lord, help me with my anger. Help me with this relationship. Help me with this addiction. Help me with this hurt. Help me with this habit. Whatever it is, you drop it in the basket, and then you go, <laughs> you ring a bell. And you say, God, God, help me. And God, God I, 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 can't, I can't do this on my own. So if you guys would stand, I want to pray for us. And as we sing this song, during the song, is your opportunity to, you know, to allow the spirit to move, to put down your pride, to quit thinking you're healthy when you're not, to think, quit thinking you're not broken when you are, and just say, God, will you help me? I could use your help. So this will be during the song, and then we'll come back and pray, and we'll do communion. But this is time for you and God. And Jesus is saying to you, what do you want me to do for you this morning. Father, we love you, and God, thank you for being our helper and ever-present help in times of trouble and times of need. And God, forgive us, forgive me for our pride, our inability to admit our own poverty, to admit that we're broken. And Father, I just pray that your spirit will move. And God, that each one of us, in our own way, our own place, where we are, God, that we embrace Whatever is broken, we'll ask you for help. And we'll ring that bell. And I pray that as we write that thing down, stick it in the basket, ring that bell, we'll fill your spirit rejoice. Because when we cry for help, you're a God who answers. In Jesus' name, amen.